you are most definitely in the right place for Honor, Thank, Inspire. Cuando me siento solo, no encuentro la razón. The voice you hear is Dante Plata, a Vietnam veteran who witnessed the casualties of war not on the battlefield, but in a hospital in Japan, where for two years, as a medic, he helped treat a seemingly endless flow of wounded, young men his age, their lives forever changed. It was an agonizing time in the life of a soldier who's now approaching age 77. Dante is deeply religious. He is also a composer and singer who has channeled those passions into producing his own Christian gospel music in both Spanish and English. Though back in the day, he was a rock and roll kid who brought music to the young man he was trying to help heal. When were you caught by the music bug? I got caught, I think I mentioned to you, I grew up in a church, very loud Pentecostal church. When I got here, my dad was going to this Pentecostal church, and there was a man by name Gomez, Brother Gomez, or Roberto Gomez, Robert Gomez. He played guitar. He's the one that get the, got the church going before the sermon. So he got me going, and I started uh, learning how to play guitar. I wanted to play like him. He was good. But then, going to high school... It's when I start hearing a lot of rock and roll, and man, did it, did it start you know getting to me little by little. And, I, and I'm a church goer at that time. My parents, you know, they were straight. You got to go to church. You know, that's the devil's music. Yeah, the devil's music, <laughs> rock and roll, and tempted. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that was me, and uh, I, I I started listening to it, and I started liking it, and. Before I knew it, I started practicing because I had learned some chords on the guitar. So I, start, I, I noticed that I could play it. So I started playing, playing. So by the time I got to high school, I met some guys like Leo Wasso, who was my lead singer. Oh, he was good. He's still alive. He goes to church now. He didn't go then, but he goes now. <laughs> anyway, him and Ralph Villalobos. Ralph Villalobos, he was in the Air Force, I think. And he, he was an MP about the time that I was in the Army. He just passed away last year. So he was my lead singer, too. And then there was another, my cousin, who was only uh, two years younger than us. He was 14. He was my drummer. And another guy named uh, uh, George. Oh, I can't think of his last. But I, the only surviving guys from that group is myself and Leo Wasso. What was the name of your group? The Walking Miracles. And we came out of Pilsen. That's what we came out of. And so you envisioned yourself having a a rock and roll or at least a musical career. Yes, we did. We got to the point that we got to play. We got noticed by Channel 11. They invited us to to be in their program, and we were there in their program. And we took pictures outside because we were proud, you know, 15, 16 years old and rock and roll and all dressed up like the Beatles, your nice tight suits and all of that. So that's where we're at. And then we got a a telegram saying that they wanted to, uh, if we wanted to accept our recording studio. By that time, I was already ready to go in the Army. I, I had already received a letter, and I was supposed to report for my physical, and that's what happened. And you're watching what's happened. This is 1965. Yes. Now, I want to set the <clears throat> stage for Vietnam at that time. Yes. The South Vietnamese government was in disarray. Yes. We started B-52 bombing raids over the north. Yes. In sheer numbers at year's end, we had over 184,000 men in Vietnam. That was eight times the number the year before. Correct. Combat death count was just over 1,900, nine times the year before. And there were 231,000 men who were drafted, double the year before. And you saw 
that the draft notice was going to come your way. And you watched all this stuff happening in Vietnam. On TV. Yeah. On TV. Walter Cronkite, he was the most famous man for showing everything uh, you could think of about the Vietnam War. And that's all I could see in color on top of that. So what's in your mind when you decide to go to the enlistment station? I was scared. I was really scared because at that time, you know, when you're 17, 18, 19 years old, you see all this on TV and you know it's coming. The, the, you know, they tell you as soon as you hit 18, you got to register for the draft. So I knew my, my time was coming. And uh, after seeing all of the horrors of what was going on in Vietnam, I got scared. And I figured, because I don't know if I mentioned to you, I had an uncle who had served in the Air Force. And he said to me, if you ever join or if you ever go in, try to get to Germany. Germany's the, the place to go. So I told him, yeah. So then the day came when I, I, I made a decision that when I went to get the physical, I was going to enlist and ask the recruiter that I wanted to go to Germany. But he lied. <laughs> what, what did he say to you? He said, oh, sure, no problem. Hey, here, <laughs> sign here. And you, Germany, you said? Yes. And he started writing like on a paper, right, Germany. I said, oh, man, I'm going to Germany. <laughs> and I was surprised. Yes, you were a naive young man, weren't you? <laughs> Big time. Yeah, <laughs> you know when you're young at that age, you don't you don't know much. So you you know you're in, and yes. now you're going to go off to basic. Yes. And where did you go to Fort Sam Houston? No, I went to yes, I did. But before that, I went to Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri. Okay. When I went there, uh, believe me, I, I I cried for two two weeks, man. I didn't I didn't want to be there. I, I I saw how it was cold. I went in November. It was cold as can be. They call Fort Leonardwood uh, Little Korea. Why? Because it's very cold in the winter. It's just like Korea. And I was there, man. I could see all these guys, man. Oh, my Lord. We were all, we had hair. By the top, by, by that week, we had no hair. I mean, they chop it off. Yeah. You know, they, they don't want that in the Army. So I was there for two weeks, man. And at night, in the barracks, we'll get together and listen to uh, Dick Biondi and uh, all these other guys from Chicago, DJs, and and uh, that were on the radio, and we would hear the music. And man, we would hear the Four Seasons and us walk like a man, and all these other groups, man. And we would cry and want to be home, but I was scared to to jump. How can you say to go AWOL? I was scared because I didn't. I knew deep inside that I would get in trouble, and I didn't want to get in trouble. But a lot of guys did that. They went AWOL. And the crazy thing about it, that they went AWOL to try to get home, but they got busted right there by uh, St. Louis, Missouri at the Greyhound bus. The MPs caught them there. Oh, they know where they were going to go. Yeah, that was the place to go, and you got caught. So I never went. But I did. I, 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 I finally said to myself after two weeks, either you take it like a man or... Try to figure out how to get out of here. And I said to myself, no, I'm going, I'm going to take it. I'm going to continue, and no matter what, I'm going to finish, and I did. So then you go on to Fort Sam Houston for AIT, yes. and that's when you become a medic. Did you have any medic aptitude? No. Had no idea I was going to go there. What I, Deep inside, I wanted to be a radio operator, a radio operator that, you know, you get your gear, and, and you talk on this thing, and, you know, they give you orders through that, and you do all kinds of things with it. But that wasn't my call. They called me to be a medic, and I didn't know. I know the guys told me, says, oh, you're going to be a medic? Yeah, I guess so. Fort Leonard, I mean, Fort uh, Sam Houston, that's where they're going to send me. Oh, man, you're going to be picking up dead bodies in Vietnam. Oh, that scared me even more. 
<laughs> so I said, oh, Lord, please help me, man. I don't, I don't. So I ended up going to Fort Sam Houston. And when you're at Fort Sam Houston, there's a moment when you're all, I guess, on the parade field or wherever. They're, yeah, yeah. They're calling out names and giving you assignments. Yeah. And you're sweating bullets because you think oh, you're man. going to Vietnam. That's right. What happened? Well, let me tell you, we were all lined up. They called us up early in the morning. And they had uh, the colonel there and all with all kind of a big table full of orders, of envelopes. And I remember, man, they start calling. The following people are going to Vietnam. They start calling, calling. There must have been about, maybe we'll say about 100. It was the whole platoon. It was, all of us were there. And they kept calling. And I said, Lord, man, I'm, they promised me Germany, man. I hope they say Germany. <laughs> so they kept calling and calling and calling. And, and I said to myself, when are they going to call my name? And I'm the last three guys. We were the last three guys. And they stopped. This they, is out of a whole company? Yes. They stopped when they got to the last guy. They stopped and said, oh, guys, take your orders and leave. Now it's time for you. To, you got 30-day pass and report on after your 30 days at uh, Lackland Air Force, or I think it's Lackland Air Force in California. And from there, you go to Vietnam. Okay. So I'm standing there and I said, we're looking at each other, me and these two guys. I said, oh, man, what happened here, man? Something's wrong here. I said to myself, I'm going to Germany. So they call my name. Private Plata, your orders are to report to U.S. Army Camp Zama, Japan. What? <laughs> what? <laughs> I raised my hand. I said, what, you, what, you know, what do you want? <laughs> you know how ignorant I was. I raised my head. It's like being in school. I said, but I'm supposed to go to Germany. <laughs> you got your orders. That's it. Don't talk to me. Don't, you know. And that was it, man. Oh, I hated that recruiter. I hated him. <laughs> so off you go to Japan. Yes. And Good old Japan. do you have a vision of what you're going to be doing when you're there? What's your role as a medic? A medic? Yeah. I was supposed to be... Um, like a corpsman, an assistant to the doctors and whatever goes on in the in the ward. So I really didn't see myself like that. I I mean, I went through my tra training. They told me about all the things I had to do. But I couldn't picture myself working in Japan in a hospital. Come on, man. You know? So when I got there, I mean, I remember, man, when I got off the plane with all these other guys that were going assigned to that Camp Zama, it smelled like fish everywhere. It was, Japanese love to eat fish. You know, they love all that good stuff. But I, I, I wasn't used to that kind of odors, you know. So I remember we got to the base. It was at night. Must have been about 10 o'clock that we got to our barracks. And they told us, you got to get up early in the morning because you got to report to the hospital. And the hospital was, our barracks was practically like 100 feet away from the hospital. That's what I remember my first day you get there. And another thing that you don't get used to, I don't think you ever would get used to this, yeah. is your job is to tend to the wounded coming in. Yes. And they're coming in by ambulance, they're yes. coming in by helicopter. Yes. And so every day you've got to bring the wounded off the choppers. Yes. What was that like? At first it was shocking because I never seen that. I never I I I saw it in movies, but I never seen it live. Well we had to rush. As soon as the, the helicopter touched down, we had to rush. The doors opened. They opened them right away, and we had to grab the, the wounded. Some of them we had to help walk. Some of them we had to put in gurneys. I mean, it was every day, five helicopters, three helicopters a day, and I was there two years. 
And believe me, it was a shocker to see this. I thought I was going to see older people coming off the helicopter. And here, I, the first thing I see is young kids. These are your contemporaries. Yeah, man. And and I'm going to tell you something that was very, very painful to see young people like that. I never expected young kids. I, I thought it was going to be older people coming out of those shoppers, but it was young kids, my age group. And some of them were crying. Some of them were moaning. Someone had blood on their clothes, dry blood on their clothes, and it was, it, it, to me, it was very painful. Believe me, I still, I still feel it. You just showed me a picture of one of the first patients yes. that you dealt with. He was shot in the chin. The bullet exited up in the through back, the, uh, uh, the back, back of his head. Yeah. And so you're dealing with him, and what's he telling you? Is he able to converse with you? Talk he, about he his experience. There was a moment when he told me he didn't want to go back. He never wanted to go back to Vietnam. He just wanted to go home. He wanted to see his family because he says I, he says he was lucky that he was able to get shot in the chin and not die, not get killed. But he didn't want to go back home to Vietnam, that he would not go back. And that was sad because I'm looking at him and I said, my Lord, we're the same age group. Yeah. In your two years, you have many more experiences with individual patients, don't yes. you? Yes, I do. Well, can you measure what that may have done to your psyche? I mean, medical people put up with a lot. They, they're very courageous. Yes. But you weren't a medical person when you started. No, I wasn't. And you're putting up with stuff that... I never thought I would see. You can imagine yourself, I imagine, being over there, yeah. can't you? Yeah, I, I never thought I would see what I got to see. And believe me, those moments when I used to go to the barrack to go to sleep, it will haunt me what I saw that day. Because I wasn't used to that. You know, I grew up in, a, in Pilsen in a very peaceful neighborhood at that time. And to go from that to see wounded people moaning, crying. Some of them couldn't walk because they were shot in the leg or something. I was not used to that. It was very horrific. This was a real live version of what you were watching on the news before yes. you went over. Yes, it was. Yeah. I never thought I would see that, but I, I got to see it. Did you ever feel conflicted about the, the fact that you were in Japan and not in Vietnam? There were times when I felt guilty because I said, these guys... I should be out there. I should be out there. And here I am, even though I'm, I'm helping these guys, even though I'm bringing them in to the hospital for care, I should have been there. And there are times when I, I'll be honest with you, when I, I talk to my buddies like Ron and all the other guys, and we talk about stuff like this, I, I feel guilty. I really feel guilty because maybe I should have gone there. But it wasn't meant. And I ended up doing others. Well, you got the call to serve, and you did. And yes, I other did. people were stateside, although the vast majority during Vietnam did go yeah. to Southeast Asia. And others went to Canada. <laughs> yeah, yes, they did. Yes, they did. Another uh, uh, burned their draft cards. Yeah. I mean, burned the flag. And that was hard to, to watch when I got back. You told me the capacity was 850 patients. At the, at the hospital, yes. Right, but... It, it had such an overload, it was yes. another four or 500 on top of that. Yes. So you it, have patients in the hallways. Yes, we did. And that was because the, 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 the Vietnam uh, uh, conflict was increasing. 
there, there was more battles. Uh, there were more people getting wounded, more people getting killed in both sides. And so that triggered more patients coming to our hospital to the point where it was hard to treat them all because there were some in the hallway. And, and you, you talked with your fellow medics, I guess, at night Oh, yeah, about we this. would talk about it. We would say, well, this is crazy. This war is becoming crazy. And, and a lot of us wanted to come home. We didn't want to see that no more. We, had, we got tired after our two years. We were tired of seeing our kids, uh, our contemporaries getting either killed or shot, wounded like that. And we had to treat them. Yeah. We had to be there for them. Lives forever changed. There you go. Well, you brought to the hospital experience for a lot of these patients yes. your gift of music. Yes. And you built a band. Yes, I did. Tell me about that. That was a, a, like a way out for me in my head. Then instead of thinking so much about what's happening, that since I, I had the talent for music, I, I figured I'm going to start something here. And I, I remember writing to my mother, say, Mom, I want you to do me a favor, get my Fender, you know, my Fender's in this beautiful case that I bought with it. Mail it to me to Japan. <laughs> and I remember she wrote me a letter. She said, are you crazy? <laughs> what are you doing over there? So she did send it after that. She sent it. And, and then that's when I started uh, a, a group uh, of people that it was five of us that we felt the same and we wanted to perform for the wounded. And we did. And we did. And how did they respond? They responded good. I mean, they were happy. I mean, here you hear your own contemporary people that are working to make you feel better playing this kind of rock and roll music of that time, of that era. And I mean, they were feeling like great. They, I mean, we could see it in their eyes. We can, The way they were moving and clapping and some of them were in their beds. And I mean, it was a great experience for us. Well, that was a bit of healing, wasn't it? Yeah. It helped me a lot, too. What did you call your group? The Ravens. The Ravens. Yes. All right. You went from the Walking Miracles to the to Ravens. The Ravens. <laughs> yes. What a name, huh? Well, but you had some real talented musicians there. Yes, we and did. So the, the sound made an impression on yes, everybody you were playing for. Yes, it did. We, we played quite a bit, and uh, we had a following, and uh, they loved it. They loved us, and uh, we were glad. And ever, after we played, like the next day, we had to go back to the hospital, and they would talk to us say man you know i feel better because you guys played some of those songs that are on the radio and he says yeah we we did it for you guys yeah. sometimes you think you walk along you fall along the way you need somebody a helping hand to get you Your mom wrote a letter yes. to President Johnson at, that time. at the time, yeah. and she made an appeal. And you, did, you didn't know about this, Had no idea right? what she was doing. And, and so what did the letter say? That she wanted, uh, if he could have kind of mercy on me, and that uh, if, if he could put me in a place where I could be safe since I'm the only one, the only male at home, and that... Uh, she would be very grateful. And she did get a letter, a response from the Department of Defense, where they told her that whatever happened, you know, that they would do their best to, to see what could happen to me. Or well, that, that was that, that was something that I could not believe. Yeah. I got that I, I found that out when after I got out. Did, mom, I says, Why didn't you tell me, Mom? Did you thank her? Yes, I did. <laughs> what a mom can do. 
Let me tell you, moms are incredible. And do you, I, I presume you think that may have been a factor in that, your assignment to Japan? I think that Japan. could have been it, yeah. When the time came for you to return home, it was 1968, yeah. and all hell was breaking loose yes. over there then. Yes. The war is raging, and the anti-war movement is hitting its zenith. Man. And I want to know what your homecoming was like. It was before I got home, right a day, a day before I left Japan, one of my sergeants pulled me in. He says, Dante, I know you're leaving. Do me a favor. I said, what? Don't wear your uniform home. When you go home, wear civilian clothes. Did you think that odd? No. Well, at the moment, yeah. Why would a sergeant tell me that? I mean, I'm proud to serve my country, but yet he's telling me. And then I realized when I got to my barracks that I was leaving, I saw on TV all those demonstrations, the anti-war movement. And I said to myself, is that why he's telling me this? Because he's afraid that I might get into, somebody might pick on me, or they might say something to me. And so I did that. I went home in my civilian clothes, got home. My mom hugged me. My dad hugged me. And he, and he was like, I never left. I never felt like, like now. Welcome home. Nobody ever said it. We never heard it from anybody. Were you angry? Not right away. I got angry when I started seeing the demonstrations. And I started seeing some of the GIs that supposedly serve in Vietnam. Now they're against the war. And I'm saying, how could you do this? How could you turn around? Yeah, you want to stop it, but you don't have to demonstrate like that and make us who served like we did something wrong or like we're doing something wrong. And I started getting very angry after that because I couldn't believe that some of these guys were already burning their draft cards and some of them were burning the flag. And that to me was a no-no. I, could, I couldn't accept that. Mm -hmm. And I did get angry. For a while I was very angry. And I, I, I said, what year is this? And I remember I said, I know it's 1968, but why are they doing this? You know, I understand somehow they feel, but man, I couldn't believe it. I was hurt. So for you, over the years, after the war, you worked in insurance. You yeah, worked for, worked for American National Insurance. Worked for the Board of Education in Chicago. Yeah, I got to work for them too. And then you became <clears throat> a community organizer. Well, yeah, because... Uh, I learned that through the Board of Ed, where they said, well, you're going to be uh, uh, like uh, between the parents and the school. I said, okay. You hold meetings and let them know what's going on in the school, any problems, you know, we'll tell the principal. So I started with that. Then, at one of the conferences by the Board of Ed downtown, I remember they invited all the people like myself to attend it. Mm -hmm. So we were, I attended, and, and during that conference, one day there, they had a lady who was talking to all the, uh, all the people there in this big conference room. And then she said, could you please lower the lights? Whoever was mending the lights lowered it. And then says, I want you to concentrate on someone that passed away that you loved a lot. I want you to think about that person real deep because that's going to help you overcome all kinds of... Oh, all, Listen, I didn't even get a, a chance to let her talk anymore. 
I got up and I said, wait a minute. This sounds to me like a seance. Were you thinking about the dead? And this ain't right. And he stopped. <laughs> he stopped. He turned back the lights on and people started talking about it and all that. This, this is not right. Well, because I did that, there was a person in the crowd that came up to me and said, are you Dante? I said, yes. How would you like to work for an agency called Latino Institute? We are organizers, and we go into the Hispanic community and organize the parents. I said, what? Yeah, would you like that? Would you, here's my card. Contact me. So I contacted her, and then I did go for the interview at Latino Institute at that time, and uh, I got hired. So from that moment on, I began to organize in the schools. And I did that for about two, three years. And then after that, a light clicked in my head, and I said, wait a minute. If the agency that I work for is able to do that, then I'm going to start something in, in my community and help my community, which is 26th Street, Little Village, South Lawndale. And I formed my own organization. I incorporated as a non-for-profit, and I had an office and a phone. And that's all I needed, a phone. Concerned Citizens for Little Village. Yes. And 1981. Okay. From there on, we were there. All right, and your mission then was to help the people, our community. Yes, right, with a variety of different yes, issues. with the front. Yes, yes. So that's how I got into this organization and being a organizer, and you name it. You were on Flight 107, Honor Flight Chicago, Flight 107, oh, yeah. and in April you were supposed to be on it, and we had a uh, fly in the ointment that day. The weather didn't cooperate, and for the first time, the flight, first time in Honor Flight Chicago history, the flight was postponed. Sure was. But that morning, you met a fella that you had not seen in like 63 years. Yes. Rogelio Arredondo. <laughs> And, oh yeah, Rogelio, yeah, and man. So you you went through the the veterans' pictures, right? And yeah. you saw that he's on the flight. Yeah, you were freaking out. Weren't I you? was. I couldn't believe it. I said, I know this guy. This guy, we were like about fourteen, thirteen, or fourteen. Our families used to go to church together, the same church we used to go to. And he was his. I know his family, his brothers, his sisters. And I said, is this him? And they said, Rogelio Arredondo. Oh my God, that's him. So that's how I got to hook up with him again after all these years. That was cool, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes, it was. Yeah. I remember being there at the honor flight when they were greeting us uh, and taking us and giving us before the flight. Uh, I told one of the ladies, the volunteers, I said, listen, see these pictures? His name is Rogelio Arredondo. He's supposed to be here. I haven't seen this guy for 60-something years. Is there any way you can get a hold of him? She says, let me find out. Let me see what I can do. Well, she went and got a hold of him, and she told him, hey, there's a guy here that hasn't seen you for 60-something years. And he said, 60-something years? What is his name? I don't know yet, but he wants to see you. <laughs> he says, really? Yeah, he wants to see you. So she willed him. Oh, yeah. <laughs> then they willed me. And there we were, face-to-face, -face, oh. man. Yeah. Good to see you. Man, it's been so many years, my brother. So many years, man. 
1960. Yeah. Our families to go to church together. Uh -huh. Our families. That's how we met. And then 1960 came around. I don't know where they went. We all separated. And I have not seen him since 1960. How's he look? <laughs> he looks great. <laughs> he looks strong <laughs> and great. Yeah. Oh, my God. It was a beautiful moment. Yeah. And I still, as a matter of fact, next week we're going to lunch. Are you? Yeah. Oh, good for you. Yeah, man. We're going to go to lunch. All right. I want to know what that trip meant for you. 107 got off the ground and we did make the trip mm, the following yes. month. And what did it mean to you? Because you never had a welcome home. Paul, let me tell you something. I know I feel what a lot of people must have felt. It was beautiful to be able to see faces telling you, welcome home. Police officers, military people, regular people telling you, welcome home, welcome home. All throughout the trip, people kept saying, welcome home. I couldn't help myself, but I cried. I cried because I wanted to hear that in, in 1968. And it didn't happen. It didn't happen. It, it, our country was in turmoil, and I never heard that until now. And because of Honor Flight, they made it possible. I'm so proud of that group. And I, I am so happy that I was able to hear finally the words, Welcome home. And I'm very grateful to them for this. Did you go to the wall? Yes, I did. That alone, it, it's very touching. Very powerful, isn't very it? Very touching. It is. Very touching. And so I'm grateful. And then when you come home, you have this nice welcome home. Yes. I mean, that's a loud, oh, bold, man. musical <laughs> Oh, home. man, it was too much, man. It was, I was in heaven, man. Uh, I, just to come home and, and be greeted by Chicagoans, people from Chicago, man, telling us welcome home, something that I didn't hear when I got off the airplane back in 68. So it was beautiful. It was yeah. a beautiful, and I, and I commend Honor Flight, and I encourage... If you're a veteran from either World War II, Korea, whatever, apply for that flight. Join up with us, man, mm -hmm. because it's beautiful. Regresemos otra vez, mis hermanos, a lavar. Cantemos en la iglesia nuestras voces levantar. Recordando. I want to talk about your music. Present day. Oh yeah. You're 76, yes. going on 77. Correct. But you look, you look like you're 50. Praise God. He's <laughs> <laughs> the genes, my and mom. You didn't get into recording your music until fairly recently, yes. right? Yes, I just started. Uh, and why? why? Because, one, because I didn't have the means, you know, at that time. I didn't have the means, and it was rough because I had a family. I had to support them. I had to work. And recording, it, it becomes an expense. And But the less... I would say the last 10 years. I I did some recording with people who have a studio in their home. And they would do it real cheap, like 150 per song. And I said, okay. And, you know, I I, I did it and did it. And now <clears throat> I have a, a, a way of doing it where even if it's costing me a little more, I'm glad to do it because... The songs that I write, which are original from me, that I write, I love to write. I want people to get encouraged because I, I sing words of encouragement 
to to look after the God. You know, if you're lonely and 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 down and out, look up to God, man. Stretch out your hand and call upon Him. He'll answer you, because I've been there, and uh, that's what I do. So now, the last two years, I I I I I, I did an album, mariachi gospel music, and. You know, Hispanic people love mariachis, you know. <laughs> yeah. We're crazy about that, in Mexico especially. Mm -hmm. So I wrote a song, mariachi. I always wanted to do a mariachi song, especially because my mom wanted me to do it back about 30, 40 years ago. But I never did. But this time I, I said, I'm going to try it. So I did. And I showed it to my wife after I recorded. And she says, you know what? You got to keep going. This sounds beautiful. This is a beautiful song that you wrote. Keep writing. So I did two albums so far, and I'm working on my third. And you posted them online. Yeah. And they're free. They're free. I, I give them away. I don't Why want money. Why do you do money. that? Because I don't want money. You know, I look at it like this. I grew up in the church, and I always believe, even in my teenagers, that sermons, that whatever God gives you and inspires you, why would you sell it? Why would you want to make a profit out of something that God is giving you? It's supposed to be a blessing to others, not uh, a burden, not a uh, financial uh, cost to them. So what I do is I give it to them. I, I want to share my blessings, what God inspired me to write with them, with people. I want them to hear my music. That's it. I don't want money. I don't want none. God has blessed me enough. I can do it. Why not? Thank you for doing that. <laughs> You've got to hold on. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you've got to hold on. Yes, you got to hold on, man. A lot of times we want to give up, but don't give up. If that song says don't give up, you got to hold on because the promises of God will come. Well, I love your music. <laughs> Thank you, Paul. You have the, uh, one of them, the lead guitarist, sounds like Carlos oh, Santana. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, that guy, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, he does. Anyway. Thank you for doing this. Thank you, and Paul, for, for this. Your experience and your service. and Thank you. It always ends with welcome home. Yes, it does. And I'm glad to be home. Okay. Thank you. Let me tell you why. We hope you found today's Honor, Thank, Inspire episode to be moving and meaningful. If you did, we invite you to share this podcast and make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The impact Honor Flight Chicago has on the lives of our veterans and their families is made possible by the generosity of our donors. To support our mission to find our veteran application, to volunteer, or simply for more information, please visit us at honorflightchicago.org. Honor